What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another edition of the Dolphins in Depth podcast. I'm Daniel Yafusi. Thanks so much for tuning in. And if you're a Dolphins fan, you got to be feeling good. It's been a nerve-wracking past couple of days on Armstead Watch, uh, but the news came out Tuesday night. The Dolphins have got their man signing former New Orleans left tackle Teron Armstead to a five-year deal. Uh, the long, long wait for a premier offensive tackle is over. Dolphins fans can breathe uh, breathe a sigh of relief. They got their guy. He's going to be in Miami for the foreseeable future. Uh, and I'm really excited to talk about that and what that means for uh, an offseason that we can say is, is kind of complete for the most part. Obviously, the draft is coming up in about a month, but uh, free agency for the most part has settled down with the Dolphins. Um, you know, their latest move, being their biggest move. Um, I have Barry Jackson with me this week. Um, really excited to talk about, again, Toronto Armstead. Uh, we talked to a litany of Dolphin, new Dolphins players uh, on Monday. Uh, so, Barry, how you doing? Hi, Daniel. Good to be with you. Christmas comes early for Dolphins. <laughs> March 22nd. It's so funny <laughs> yeah. that this particular signing really shifts the balance, I think, of public perception of this for Asian class, right? I mean, it's difficult to make judgments based on reaction on social media. But I know I felt this way. I think you might have felt this way as well. This makes it a successful offseason. Well, if they hadn't acquired a top-flight tackle, you would have said, why did they not get an elite player when you started the offseason with $64 million in space? Now they have gotten an elite player, along with obviously keeping really good ones in Ogba Gasecki supplementing and augmenting at receiver and running back. So suddenly, with Armstead in the fold, I looked at this offseason as a success. No, most definitely, most definitely. I think I think the first week, um, most Dolphins fans, especially the, the opening days of the, of the tamping period, most Dolphins fans were pretty satisfied in terms of adding two, um, two accomplished, efficient running backs, adding a left guard in Connor Williams, adding a really nice slot receiver in Cedric Wilson Jr. But then there, there still was that thought like, hey, we really have to address the most glaring need on this team, which is offensive tackle. And obviously, Armstead was regarded as the top lineman by some websites um, and organizations, the top player in this cycle. But he went an entire week without being signed, which was kind of confusing. Obviously, there was some speculation about him waiting for Deshaun Watson to make his decision. Um, you know, Lyle Collins, we went through that whole saga with them, you know, apparently pursuing him and then not pursuing him. He signs with the, the Bengals. And then they bring in Armstead for this visit on Monday. And we don't hear much after Monday. And then Tuesday, it's reported that Chris Greer is in as you know, some part of Texas at Texas A&M's Pro Day uh, on Instagram, we see Teron Armstead is with Trent Brown in another part of Texas. And it's just adds more uncertainty, but they had their guy all along. And I guess one thing that also sticks out to me is that I thought that, you know, forgetting somebody who's just doesn't turn 31 for a couple months, um, regarded as one of the best tackles in the league. I thought this might've been like a market setting deal, but they got him for a fairly decent price, you know, five years, $70 million, 87.5 million with incentives. Um, the guaranteed ranks second among, you know, all left tackles, but his average salary, even with incentives is, uh, is fifth. I mean, did, did that surprise you? It did a little bit, but at the same time, he is an older player in terms of obviously, you know, approaching a 30 and also has had the injury history. So I think that made these negotiations a little bit difficult because the Dolphins had to protect themselves if his body breaks down. Now, remember, injuries have always been an issue for him. Between year two and six in his career, he missed 26 games. He did play 15 games in 2019, 14 games in 2020. 
So that gave you hope that maybe he had turned the corner with the injuries. But then last season, he managed only nine games. Now, in his defense, this is a tough guy who has played through injuries before, even though he's missed a lot of games. Saints people will tell you that he plays hurt. Toughness is not an issue. So he's not missing games for minor things. Last season, the nine games out were because of elbow and knee injuries, and he underwent off-season knee surgery on January the 18th. So these have been serious issues. But I think the health issue, you know, and the fact anytime an offensive lineman has that much wear and tear on him, I think that's what complicated the negotiations a little bit. But uh, what's clear is even if you get this guy for only half a season, you have upgraded your line yes. significantly with Teron Armstead and to a bit of a lesser extent, Connor Williams. Right now, I think you can say that the Dolphins' offensive line has gone from the worst in the league to above average and potentially well above average if this new coaching staff, Matt Applebaum, obviously Mike McDaniel, Frank Smith, can extract more from particularly Austin Jackson and Liam Eikenberg. Because you sort of figure, Daniel, that one of those two will likely emerge with a starting job on the right side of the offensive line along with Robert Hunt, who obviously is going to start somewhere, whether it's right tackle or right guard. A couple other things on Armstead. This this was incredible to me as I looked at his pass protection metrics over the last few years. So last season, 263 pass blocking snaps allowed one sack. Year before, 500 pass blocking snaps allowed only three. 2019, didn't allow a single sack in nearly 600 pass blocks. That's music to two of his ears. <laughs> exactly, right. Year before, allowed just one. So if you add up the last four years of work, it was 47 games, considering the games missed an injury, he allowed five sacks. And certainly, I don't want to say anything critical about Jesse Davis and Liam Eichenberg because they've been through enough and they're really good guys. But for perspective, Last year, Liam gave up nine sacks. Jesse gave up eight. Teron Armstead's given up five in his last 47 games. That tells you the type of player they're getting as a pass protector. To you, was this the best thing they could have done on the line? Would you have maybe gone a little bit toward Lael Collins instead because of the age factor? It's an interesting question because when you when you factor in Armstead versus Collins, you know, I know you – had mentioned that at one point they probably could have gotten both if they really prioritized, you know, their, their, their cap room, they could have fit both, um, you know, on the team in 2022. Um, but obviously you'll, you'll definitely, I don't want to even say settle for Armstead. You'll, you'll take Armstead. Um, Collins being the right tackle and to a blindside block blocker, that is something that you do have to account for. But I mean, you, you, you just, you can't be any happier with Armstead. I mean, I, I kind of see it as, um, Trent Williams with Kyle Shanahan and Mike McDaniel in San Francisco. I mean, he was like an anchor. He was, he was literally like an anchor for that offensive line. And they even did crazy stuff like moving him in motion and having him as a, as a lead pull blocker and stuff like that. It's like, I wrote about it in the story that we just got up, you know, it really does solidify the left side of the line where it's like, you have so many options now. I mean, obviously they could still upgrade center, but you have Michael Dieter who was serviceable in 2021. And again, I mean, right guard, right tackle. I tend to, I tend to believe that you should keep Robert Hunt at right guard, even though there was a lot of talk about his potential at right tackle. It's like, you know, that he can play a right guard at a, at a above average, good, maybe even very good level. So just don't tinker with that. And then let Austin and Eichenberg 
settle right tackle. And then, you know, again, like you said, you go from the 31st, 32nd offensive line in the NFL to 16th, 15th, 14th, and you hope that the in, the fusion infusion of these legitimate veteran starters in Armstead and in Colin Connor Williams added to the coaching up of the new guys, of, I mean of the of the old guys with you know Matt Applebaum, the new offensive line coach, you hope that again you get a respectable offensive line because this this is this is going to be a running team in 2022. So now you're looking at an offensive line that is built to do what you want to do in 2022. Two points you made, Daniel, that I want to build on. One is I'm glad you mentioned Trent Williams because during that 2020 draft, if they had used the 18th pick on the best available player and instead done what the 49ers did that year, which was acquiring uh, Trent Williams for a fifth rounder in 2020, a third rounder in 2021. Look at what could have happened if they had used that 18th pick on Justin Jefferson instead of Austin Jackson and traded for their left tackle. And obviously Trent Williams, he was an older player with some injury issues, but he's been a rousing success for San Francisco. So that two years later sort of corrects that mistake. The point you made about leaving Hunt at right guard, I definitely think a strong case could be made to do that because he graded out as one of the league's top 40% right guards last season. But we did see the final eight games of the 2020 season. He was an effective right tackle. So to me, I would maybe go through the offseason program feeling, uh, seeing if you can feel a comfort level with either Liam or Austin Jackson at right tackle, and then know that if you need to move Hunt there, if he's better there, and you can get away with Eichenberg or Jackson at right guard, maybe make that switch at some point in training camp. They've obviously switched things around early in camp with players' positions repeatedly over the years, albeit with different coaching staffs. I do think, and you obviously were in Indianapolis and heard Chris Greer say this, I do think this staff does have a belief in these young players. As Chris mentioned to you and a few of the other beat writers, these coaches like these players coming out of the draft. They like Eichenberg, they like Jackson, they like Tunt. So that gives you reason to believe that they think they can get more out of them than maybe the previous staff did. Uh, obviously, we're not offensive line coaches, but you look at the the body, the skill set for Eichenberg and Jackson, Daniel, and you you know the game extremely well. What do you think projects as their best position from what you have seen from them? Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting question because especially with this with McDaniel and this new coaching staff, this new zone running scheme that we're hearing so much about. Um, I went back and I went and looked at just read up ten of the, the general scouting reports of these players as prospects, you know, as as NFL draft prospects. And the the book on on Austin Jackson was that he was a very very athletic player, but maybe not the most technically sound. And I read on one of the websites that he's the best fit for a zone running scheme because he can move laterally. He can get out of his stance quickly and move to the second level quickly. So that lends me to believe that, you know, he didn't have a lot of success at left tackle. Um, I know after that first, first couple of games of his rookie year, um, they moved him to left guard. He was so, so, but improved a bit. It, it lends me to believe that maybe there is a possibility for right tackle. And if maybe not right tackle, right guard, Eichenberg's a little different because he was kind of the opposite of Austin Jackson coming out of college where he wasn't maybe as, as athletic, athletically gifted as Austin Jackson or other 
uh, offensive lineman, but he was so technically sound that, that was kind of his, his saving grace. Like he's so technically sound, he's not going to be out of the uh, in the wrong spot too often. So I, I tend to believe that Austin Jackson is a better fit for this uh, this zone running scheme, and he might have a spot at right tackle. Um, you know, as compared to Liam Eichenberg, but again, um, it's only Eichenberg's second season. They're not going to give up on a on a high high round draft pick this early on. He's going to get a shot to compete. Um, you know, so again, I, I mean, you have the left side uh, settled apparently. I mean, it's seemingly, and now you just have to kind of figure out and let the competition sort itself out. And you know, with Liam, I think one thing that I emerged with hearing Chris Beer speak is that. They believe they drafted good players. And as Greer said, they just have to play better. Yes. But if you're able to go two and a half years without allowing a sack at a major FBS program like Notre Dame, there has to be talent there. So I yes. think that's left the front office believing, look, coaching makes a difference. If we get someone in here who can extract more from these guys, Liam Eikenberg not only can be salvaged, but he can be a good starter for us. So yes. even I would have spent the money on both Leo Collins and Tron Armstead. I do understand the thinking of we don't want to say this early in the careers of Liam Eikenberg in particular and Austin Jackson to a lesser extent that these are NFL backups. I think you have yeah. five, the good possibility of at least having one of them start for you next season along with obviously Rob Hunt. No, most definitely, most definitely. And again, as we um, look, you know, we've kind of passed the first wave of free agency. This is kind of the second proceeds the second wave. Um, you know, again, the drafting is, is in about a month. I mean, where do the Dolphins go from here? I mean, I, I think that the only outside of, you know, the, the remaining positions on, on the offensive line and maybe inside linebacker, all of their major, major positions in need were addressed. And obviously they kept Kiseki, they kept Emmanuel Agba. Um, where do they go in from upgrading this team next? I would say center obviously has to be addressed. It would be stunning if Michael Dieter uh, is the unquestioned starter going into next year. And I was told that they are not done. I was left with the impression center will be addressed, whether it's through a JC Treader and free agency, whether it's through the draft, where there are two centers from Boston College. Coincidentally enough, the Dolphins' new offensive line coach, Matt Applebaum, coached both of them. Yes. Uh, Johnson, the better of the two prospects, he and Alec Lindstrom, Johnson projects to Miami's range around 29. So I would totally expect a likely starting center to be added in the weeks ahead. I've also been told they're poking around on a fourth receiver who could handle returns. They would like ideally for Jalen Waddle not to have to handle that. And it's, <laughs> don't they need an inside linebacker to build around next to Jerome Baker? I know they're going to get by again this year with the Landon Roberts was definitely serviceable or better than serviceable last year, Duke Riley behind him. But if you can get uh, Nicole Dean out of Georgia, a player that Mel Kuyper projected to Miami in his latest mock draft today, I think that would make some sense. You look at this roster and what pops into your mind is first and second biggest needs still. I would say first is I'd still like to see them add a really, really dynamic wide receiver. I do like Cedric Wilson, but again, he kind of projects as mainly a slot receiver. Um, he, he said he feels comfortable moving around, but again, we his most success in Dallas came in the slot, and maybe that was partly a byproduct of, you know, he had to work in the slot because of the talent around him. Um, you know, you have him, you have Jalen Waddle, you have Devontae Parker, who you just kind of hope is is healthy for the majority of the season. But again, you, you don't necessarily want to count 
on that. And then if Devontae Parker gets hurt, you're kind of left where you were last year. So I would love them if they can get somebody like a Jahan Dotson out of Penn State. If for some reason, Jameson Williams um, drops to 29 with that ACL injury. I know Christian Watson from North Dakota State has been rising up draft boards and there's talk that he might be a potential first round pick. If they can get a really dynamic wide receiver to pair along with Jalen Waddle, Devontae Parker, Cedric Wilson, okay, the offense is in really, really good shape because they're essentially kind of running it back with the defense. I mean, there really were no major additions to the defense outside of Keon Crossan, who's more of a special teams player. But if you can just add that next, that that additional dynamic pass catcher for Tua, you have most of the offensive line in place. You have a good, good group of running backs who can, you know, do different things. Now you have the pass catchers who can test a defense and it's not just a while that you're relying on. I think that then you're really talking about an offense that, you know, it's like, we can work with that. You know, we can, we can really work with that now. I agree. And I do agree with your point also on receiver, because right now, obviously if Devonte has another injury, then your third receiver at the moment would be either Preston Williams, Lynn Bowden, Alan Hurts. Exactly. For another receiver. I obviously uh, want to factor in the two 49ers receivers who are number four, number five receivers there with Sherfeld and uh, River Craycraft. Yeah. Uh, you, I think, ideally would want someone with more of a career body of work as your number four than Preston and uh, Lynn Bowden. Uh, and of course, that guy could end up being number three if Devontae's injured or if, God forbid, Jalen Wilder or Cedric. Uh, Wilson is injured. So I agree with you. Receiver still needs to be addressed yep. if not again in free agency than it picks 2950 or, or 102. Yeah, no, most definitely, most definitely. But again, um, it's looking like a very, very successful offseason right now. And just with the signing of one player, one very, very big, highly regarded player. So it's going to be interesting to see him expecting that we'll probably get to talk to Toronto Armstead in the coming days. So that'll be fun. Um, well, we're going to take a short break. But when we come back on the other side of things, uh, we got to speak to some of the newest members of the Miami Dolphins on Monday. And uh, one of them, a hometown kid, Teddy Bridgewater, had some interesting comments or Non or no comments. Uh, we're gonna get into that and a lot more. So stay locked with us. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time: the roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May fifth, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. What's going on, everybody? Still here with Barry Jackson. Uh, really enjoy the first half of our uh, podcast right here talking all things Teron Armstead. Um, the Dolphins signing him to a five-year deal. The three-time pro bowler is coming to Miami. I know a lot of Dolphins fans are really happy about that. Um, and as we wait for him to be introduced to the media, uh, I want to talk about some of the newest Dolphins that we've got to finally talk to uh, on Monday after uh, leaks and reports and tampering and signing announcements. We finally got uh, introduced to, to eight members of uh, eight new members of the Miami Dolphins. And um, one of those uh, players 
Teddy Bridgewater, a uh, hometown uh, kid, Miami native, a uh, Liberty City. Um, he, he was asked about, you know, coming back home, his role, um, what that means for Tua. Um, I, and I found it kind of interesting. You know, he, he was first asked, you know, essentially um, about the conversations that he had about coming here to back up Tua. And he, he really didn't didn't want to comment much about football, about really what his role was. I know on multiple occasions he was asked, are you expecting to be to, uh, to his backup? Are you expecting to compete for the job? And he said, hey, the football stuff will work itself out. I'm just here to compete and be the best football player I can be. And those comments kind of caused a little bit of a stir amongst the Dolphins Twitter um, on Monday. Um, Barry, is there much to make about these comments I know the beat writers interpreted the no comment differently. I'm on the side of interpreting it merely as a player who wants to keep conversations confidential, which is not unusual. I didn't perceive these comments. I didn't infer from his comments that he was told that he's going to be given a chance to win the starting job because everything that Mike McDaniel and Chris Greer have said this offseason has been that Tua is our guy. We believe in Tua. Mike McDaniel said on Pat McAfee's show, I think I can make him into one of the you know better quarterbacks in, in the league. Uh, so there's been nothing to suggest that they are going into this wanting an open competition with the backup quarterback. So I would be stunned if there is an open competition in training camp. I think the only scenario where Bridgewater plays this year is, A, obviously an injury to Tua, or – if Tua struggles over multiple weeks of the season, as I tweeted yesterday, if the Dolphins are one and six, if Tua is struggling, then naturally there would be a change. And I don't think anyone would quibble with that. But you need a read on the fifth overall pick of the draft two years ago. You're not going to get that if you open up a competition with a guy who at this point, you know, has become, I, I don't want to say journeyman because that's disrespectful to Bridgewater, but he's become a guy who's perceived as more like a backup than a starter, which to me is a little bit surprising only because his numbers in Denver weren't bad last year, 12th in the league passer rating. His passer rating, in fact, was four points higher than Tua's last year. Uh, so I know some, some of the beat writers inferred that, well, maybe there is going to be a competition. I did not take that from his comment or his no comment at all. How, how did you read it? Uh... I'll say this. I'll say I agree with you that I don't think that there's going to be an open competition when training camp opens up. Um, like you said, um, this might be McDaniels, Mike McDaniels' first season in Miami, but it's Tua's third season in Miami, and that's a very, very big third season. They, after the third season, um, they have to make a decision on um, exercising this fifth-year option. They have two 2023 first-round draft picks. So if things don't work out, the Dolphins will be in the market for a quarterback in 2023. If, 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 if Tua does not play up to standard or, or show significant improvement in 2022, we're, we're asking the quarterback questions again next offseason. Um, so for that, because for that reason, and like you said, just connecting the dots of everything that McDaniel, Chris Greer, Stephen Ross have said this offseason, it doesn't make sense that they would have brought in Teddy Bridgewater to compete for a starting job. And really the money doesn't, doesn't add up too. I mean, they gave him a 6.5, like one year, $6.5 million deal. It can go up to 10 million with a census. That's, that's backup money for, for the most part. Um, but again, it's, it, it's just kind of weird. And to me though, that, and again, last year with Jacoby Brissett, he said he doesn't see himself as a, as a backup. I completely respected that, but we knew he was the backup. 
So it just kind of strikes me as odd that Bridgewater couldn't even say, I am here to back up to it. Like, again, I mean, when, when you strike these deals and, you, and you're having negotiations and conversations with the agents, the players, or wh- whoever it may be, I mean, for the most part, there, there tends to be some kind of understanding of the role, you know? Um, and I, w- I wanted to ask Teddy before he kind of got bombarded with all the, the questions um, about his role. I wanted to ask him, did you have opportunities to start elsewhere? Because, again, when Mike McDaniel said we're in the market for a backup, he said we're looking for a veteran backup who can, you know, help Tua, but also step in if need be. Um, Teddy Bridgewater didn't fit the profile of a guy that was would come in to back up Tua. I mean, again, he's kind of viewed as a marginal quarterback, but he can start for a couple teams in this league. I mean, he could probably start for Seattle. He could start, he could start for some teams in this league. So again, while I do think that he's the backup, there's not going to be an open competition. It did strike me as weird that he couldn't just say, I'm here to, I'm here to help to be the backup. If I need to go in, I'll do that. You know? Right. I I, I agree with that. Uh, He's 33 and 30 all time as a starter. He's still in his twenties. He probably doesn't view himself as a backup, but I agree with you. I would have liked him to have said, look, I'm here as the backup. Because frankly, that would have eliminated any of this conversation of people speculating if there's going to be controversy. And I'm going to say this without any disrespect to Teddy Bridgewater, who's a, a good guy and he's been a serviceable NFL quarterback, better than that at times. But if Teddy Bridgewater plays in more than a couple of games for the Dolphins, next, then it's going to be a very bad thing because that will mean that Tua will either be injured again, which would mean that you probably can't trust him as your long-term guy if he continues to get hurt, or it will mean that he's ineffective and benched and your quarterback in 2023 will probably be Tyler Van Dyke or someone else. <laughs> Bryce Young or somebody. Of the college draft <laughs> in 13 months. So it's not a good thing if Bridgewater plays, but at the same time, credit the Dolphins for signing him. He was the best option out there. Uh, Mariota would have been an option, but he was clearly waiting for a starting job and he got one. So as far as guys willing to come in as a backup or seemingly a backup, I think Bridgewater was the best one out there. I wanted to touch quickly with you on some of their other moves. I like the Cedric Wilson pickup. When he got an opportunity last year, he produced big time for Dallas with the six touchdowns, even as their number four receiver does very good work out of the slot and obviously underrated thrower too, five for five for 111 in his yep. career. I like the fact that they acquired backs with high per carry averages without a lot of miles on them, even though Raheem Mostert's coming off major surgery and is uh, you know a little older. He doesn't have a huge number of carries in his career. He still you know has a fairly low odometer. Same with Chase Edmonds. They're both very skilled at the uh, zone. Uh, running scheme that Mike McDaniel is going to implement. So I like those two pickups. Love the Connor Williams move. I would not move him to tackle. I think the Dolphins have had too many issues over the years trying to move Move players. They're natural to another position. I know he played tackle at Texas, but he's been a clearly above average NFL guard. Leave him at guard. The only thing that I would question uh, in this offseason, we talked about maybe potentially investing money in a right tackle. The only thing I would question is, not waiting longer on the inside linebacker market because there were quality starters who likely would have been an upgrade over Landon Roberts. And I would have just waited a little bit longer knowing that you probably could have gotten Roberts 
or Duke Riley back, and the market was flooded with starters. Obviously, Green Bay started to re-sign there. Bobby Wagner still available at the time of our taping tonight. So that's something that has to be addressed. That was the only thing that, that particularly bothered me from this free agent class. And again, I don't want to discredit Landon Roberts. Pro Football Focus rated him uh, barely above the 50% mark among inside linebackers last year. He's obviously effective against the run, but he's a two-down player. Uh, anything bother you about this spray agent class? I, and I ask that even though both of us, I think, deemed the offseason a success, was there anything that bothered you about what they did? Yeah, I mean, I mean, truthfully, no, because and I know that, again, um, the the last few days have been very, very, you know, kind of irksome for, for Dolphins fans because they were kind of on edge with um, trying to get trying to get that offensive tackle. And obviously they got it with Armstead. Um, but now, but I, I almost wonder if this was like calculated, you know, they, they, they gave some very, very modest deals. I mean, the eight deals that they gave out were all modest. I mean, the, the biggest deal they gave out, I believe was to Connor Williams and that being a $14 million deal. Um, and they were really like strategically and calculate in a calculated manner, just attacked and kind of sniped at all their, all their, uh, their positions of, you know, need their glaring weaknesses. Um, they weren't, you know, big, huge names. You know, I, I was telling a lot of people, um, you know, if, if the, if the Dolphins gave Christian Kirk $21 million to come in and be their number two receiver, I mean, people would have been coming for Chris Greer's head, like $21 million. That's what the Jags gave them. Like that they, they kind of, they overpaid and kind of messed up the wide receiver market in doing that. So again, you get a slot receiver and Cedric Wilson, um, who, 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 like you said, always performed when asked, um, they found fits for the scheme. You know, they might not have been the biggest name, but they found fits, you know, Alec Engold having the relationship with Frank Smith back um, in Oakland and the Las Vegas Raiders. Um, obviously Mostert and Trent Sherfield knowing that scheme. Um, you know, I asked Connor Williams, you know, how much zone blocking did you do in Dallas? And he said, that's what we were known best for. Um, so you, you found guys who are legitimate fits in the scheme. And while they might not be big name players, um, you know, they fit and there's kind of upside, you know, for the most part, it's, it's a bunch of young guys like Connor Williams. I believe he's 24. He won't turn, he'll turn 25 shortly before the, the start of the season. Um, obviously, uh, most 30 is 30, but Chase Edmonds is in his mid twenties. Um, you know, Cedric Wilson is in his mid twenties. Like you got guys who they're not, you know, you hope that they're in the middle of their prime and that their best their best football is ahead of them and will be in Miami um, inside linebacker. You know, I, I think that it was kind of clear in the first week of free agency that that position wasn't as big of a, of, of a need to upgrade as maybe other positions and just looking at how, looking at how their moves shake, shaked out. I'm perfectly fine with that. If one of those um, top inside linebackers drops to 29, then that position is, is taken care of. I think that there is good depth in this draft class to get an inside linebacker. Um, so it's not like a first round or bust thing. Um, but again, you know, you enter the draft without a glaring need, as you said, you can, you can legitimately pick best player available and you're happy with whoever you get. Um, number 29 um, isn't as good as number 15, which it would have been if the Dolphins didn't make all those maneuvers and trades. Um, but this class, while not maybe having the top, top, like blue chip prospect depth there, you know, the quarterback depth, um, you know, the middle round, the late first round, middle rounds, day two, day three, there's a lot of really good depth. So I'm under the impression that at number 29, if the Dolphins, you know, scouted right, if their board is set correct and they pick the right guy, there's going to be a guy who can make an impact and 
2022. Um, the draft hall might not be like 2021 because it's going to be very, very hard to get three players like Javon Hall and Jalen Waddle and Jalen Phillips, who all look like they're on Pro Bowl arcs. But I think especially with the number 29 overall pick and even number 50 when they pick next, you can get a real, real good player. And assessing what they did this offseason, let's not forget they kept their two best free agents, Emmanuel Agba. They ended up paying him more than I think they ever envisioned getting to four years, 65. I don't think they ever thought they would go to that level. But minutes before free agency started, I think Chris Greer felt like this is something we need to do. He's one of our best defensive players. And then the Gasecki franchise tag, I think, was a good decision, even though obviously as a blocker, he's never going to be particularly good. It's difficult in an offense that was already lacking weapons to give up one of your better ones. Plus, he's an asset. You don't just let an asset walk out the door when you have a reasonable franchise tag number available to you as a mechanism to keep them. Besides the inside linebacker thing, Daniel, the one other thing that surprised me a bit in free agency was them keeping their tight end room together because we know the importance of blocking with this group. Durham Smythe is a good blocker. Adam Shaheen is a good blocker. If you believe the pro football focus numbers, they are far from great blockers. They were middle of the pack blockers over the last couple of seasons. So I thought perhaps they would let one of them go just to be able to carve out a role for Hunter Long after investing a third round pick in him or to sign a frontline blocking tight end. The fact that they didn't is a little bit surprising to me, but we saw in this free agency that Chris Greer values, stability, continuity, if players are at least somewhat productive for him. Uh, we saw that with virtually every defensive backup re-signed except for Devin McCourt, or I should say Jason McCourt, who had a foot injury, and Justin Coleman who moved on. But every other defensive backup was re-signed, kept all their tight ends. So Greer showed this offseason, I like continuity as long as the players are decent or better for me and we can re-sign them on reasonable deals. That was his preference. Yeah, I mean, and the free agency moves, you know, followed the 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 trend that they kind of set, you know, from the hiring of McDaniel. They keep Josh Boyer's defensive coordinator. They keep the majority of the the, the top position coaches. They really overhauled the offensive staff, and we and we saw how that kind of translated to the free agent, the first week of free agency, where they really really attack the offensive side of the ball, seven of the eight guys, or now we can say eight of the nine guys that they brought in are on the offensive side of the ball. The one defensive back that they brought in, Keon Crossan, is a special teams player. And they do, like you said, they do re-sign a whole bunch of those um, those defensive players. So it really is following the trend that they've set. And kind of, again, if you if you follow what they've said, their actions have matched that. You know, the the impression was that the defense was was ready to win now. The defense didn't need much tinkering. It was the offense that needed to be overhauled. And all the moves to this point kind of reaffirm their beliefs. Absolutely. And I think Dolphins fans can come away from this offseason feeling good, but at the same time, it's going to be a struggle in the AFC. You've injected high-end quarterbacks, obviously, with Russell Wilson in Denver with uh, Deshaun Watson in Cleveland, even if he is suspended six games. I tweeted out the odds today in Las Vegas. The Dolphins are have the 12th shortest odds, the so number 12 of 16 AFC teams in terms of making the playoffs. The only thing the Dolphins can hope for in terms of having a legitimate postseason chance is that the AFC North teams and the AFC West teams beat each other up. They all split their season series and yeah. that the Dolphins – offense is elevated uh, to levels well beyond what we saw last year because of a combination of Mike McDaniel's brilliance 
the left side of the offensive line, which now would stack up with most any in football with Armstead and Connor Williams, with two running backs who are proven 4.5 to 5.6 per carry guys, right? And with significant improvement from Tua in an offense that would seem to suit his skill set. Plus, Cedric Wilson showing over sustained period what he flashed in Dallas last year. So if all of those things happen, and if the AFC West teams and AFC North teams beat each other up, then I see a path. I don't want to say narrow path, but I see a path where the Dolphins possibly could sneak in as a wild card team. And I think that's pretty much probably all we can hope for at this point, barring an injury to Josh Allen in Buffalo, a major injury. It's like, uh, have you seen Dumb and Dumber? You're saying we have a chance. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> we have a chance, but no, exactly. Yeah, the, the, the Dolphins definitely have the, their work cut out for them. Um, it's going to be a dogfight in the AFC, but again, especially with the signing of Armstead, some of the shrewd moves that they've made over the past couple of days, you're definitely starting to see um, the pieces start to come together. And the hope is that exactly, you know, with, with the draft, with the coaching staff that's brought in, um, once you start to get to these offseason workouts, training camp, you start to see it all come together. Um, and we're going to see, like I said, they have a, they have the work cut out for them. But we're going to see what happens. Um, that brings us to the end of another edition of the Dolphins In-Depth Podcast. I want to thank Barry so much for joining me. Uh, we uh, recorded this about 30 minutes or so after the news broke. Um, and then again, Dolphins fans, are they're sleeping well Tuesday night. They're waking up Wednesday. Very, very happy. Um, we're going to be at the owners meetings next week. Um, to talk with Mike McDaniel, maybe smooge with uh, some some owners and executives. Um, so we'll be, uh, you know, the Dolphins at a podcast will be reporting um, from, from Palm Beach next week um, to talk all things Dolphins. Um, but until then, you guys take care. Bye.